Our scripture reading this morning will be from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 through 40. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It is now time for Chud, Lord of all. Please be seated. Someone once said, it doesn't matter how slowly you run, so long as you don't stop. As many of us know, running the race as a follower of Christ can be difficult. There's always unexpected obstacles to overcome and unwanted pain to manage. It's easy to stop. But scripture reassures us that any obstacle or pain we face pales in comparison to what awaits us at the finish line. It's not about getting there first. It's about running with purpose and with peace. The end of Hebrews tells us how to do that, how to keep on running life's amazing race to victory. We're in Hebrews chapter 11 today. If you want to open up your Bibles there or your devices, Hebrews 11. The second part of Hebrews, the end of Hebrews, which is the basis for this sermon series, is really the encouragement part. All throughout Hebrews, as Rick said earlier, the writer is telling us that Jesus is superior, that he is better than anything else out there. And then, because he is superior, the writer says, so keep running the race, don't give up. And so the last part of Hebrews is meant to be an encouragement, not just for those first century Jewish Christians, but for us as well because life is not always easy. The race is not always an easy race to run. I appreciate some of our college guys helping out with service today, and it's always good to see our college students. They're starting to, uh, to get back into the swing of things. OC started about, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 days ago. I think UCO, UCO starts very soon, so it's always good to see our students here. And those of you who are OC students, you might be interested in this. Not long ago, I was looking online for uh, some pictures to help us with our centennial here. We're celebrating 100 years in November. The Edmund Church of Christ has been around a long time. And so I was looking for some very specific pictures online, and I stumbled across this picture. It's a picture of Central Christian College in Bartlesville. This is the predecessor to OC. This was the OC before OC. Central Christian College. Evidently, if you can read that there, this, uh, it's a dormitory and more specifically, it is a girls' dormitory at the uh, Central Christian College. Now, we, we have a couple of members, maybe more, that were on that campus. One of our elders, Richard Blankenship, was there. I think James Kell was there. Now, I don't know how long or how much time these guys spent at the girls' dormitory. You'll have to ask them to give you that information. I, I'm not sure. But I came across this picture, and it's actually a postcard some of you may not even know what a postcard is, a postcard. And so it also showed the other side. And so when you look at the other side, it's really interesting. The first thing I noticed is the stamp. The stamp costs three cents, three cents. Again, some of you don't even know what a stamp is either, right? A regular stamp right now, I think is like 60 cents. I don't have any idea how much a postcard stamp is, but some things have changed. Then I noticed the address. Look at that. Just a name and care of another name and a city and a state. 
No street address, no zip code, no P.O. box. That's amazing. I don't know how big Baldwin, Kansas was in 1956. I don't know how big Baldwin, Kansas is right now. But evidently in 1956, it was the size so that everyone knew who Jack Fine was. <laughs> and the postmaster could find Jack, and Jack could make sure Glenda got this postcard. I guess that's how it worked back then. But then, the good part. I read the message from this young college student, this young lady, and this is what she writes. Dear Glenda, how is the baby? Okay, I hope. I am having a good time. I will write you a letter tomorrow. I am playing baseball, swimming, watching movies. Typical student, no mention of classes or homework. And there is a lot of boys around. Tell Warren, I don't like him because I found a cuter boyfriend. <laughs> Love, Carol. <laughs> Can you imagine getting dumped that way? I mean, nowadays, it's bad to get dumped by text message, right? I mean, that's a bad way to get dumped. But imagine getting dumped by a postcard. Not even to you, a secondhand postcard. <laughs> if you see Warren, tell him I don't like him anymore. That's great. Sometimes things don't go as planned, do they? Sometimes you get bad news. Matter of fact, you know this, but the world is full of bad news. Now, you might be saying, I came to church this morning. It's been a rough week. I wanted to be encouraged. And the preacher gets up there and he says, the world is full of bad news. But you know it's true. Just watch the news sometimes. Just turn on the TV. Actually, don't do that because you already know this. But if you do turn on the TV or if you go to social media, all you will see is bad news. Story after story after story. Headline after headline after headline. Post after post after post. It's bad news because this world isn't yet as it should be, is it? Why is there so much bad news? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there injustice? Why is there oppression? Why is there evil and darkness in this world? Because this world is not as it will be or should be. This world is broken. One time I, I said that that phrase in a sermon, this world is broken. And afterwards, a woman came up to me and she said, I gotta tell you what my granddaughter said. When you said the world is broken, she said out loud, so fix it. That's what we do with broken things, right? We fix them. Well, God is fixing the world. He is in the process of fixing the world. Genesis 3 will give way to Revelation 21. The fall will be redeemed and life will be restored death will be swallowed up in victory god will restore and make all things new but god is doing it on his timeline isn't he according to his schedule according to his will and his plan and in the meantime we are left here in this broken world we are left here where there is pain and where there is suffering and where there is bad news and as christians we're not exempt are we we're not exempt from suffering, from pain, from injustice, from things not going our way. Although we are called out from the world, it doesn't make us separated from this dark world and the pain that is in this world. We're not exempt from suffering. And sometimes the pain we feel and the suffering we go through is a direct cause 
or a direct result from our faith. And sometimes it is in spite of our faith. So the question is, it's not will something difficult happen in my life? If you live long enough, it's going to happen. So the question isn't will suffering happen? The question is, can you overcome the suffering? Can you overcome the world? Will your faith stay intact as you go through suffering? Hebrews gives us some answers to those very difficult questions. So we're in Hebrews chapter 11, right in the middle of what we sometimes call the Faith Hall of Fame. And I want you to imagine that it is literally built like a building, like a hall of fame. You've all been to museums and those kinds of displays, and you know you walk through and you see all the different pictures and statues and plaques and readings and relics and artifacts, and you just work your way through the museum or through the, the hall of fame, if, if, it's that, if that's what it is. And so I want you to imagine the Faith Hall of Fame, and you're working your way through. We started it last week. You're seeing all these names from the past, from the Old Testament. And then we get to Abraham, and Abraham has a big display. There's a lot to say about Abraham. In fact, we finished with Abraham last week, but this week we pick up with Abraham again. Remember the phrase for all of these men and women. They lived by faith. They died by faith. So look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. The writer takes us back all the way to Genesis 22, that well-known story where God said to Abraham, I need to know if you're fully on board. I need to know if you will surrender to me submit to me yield to me as you go out into the unknown so sacrifice your son now God knew that he wasn't going to make Abraham follow through with this child sacrifice but Abraham didn't know that at that moment at that time so Abraham finds himself on one hand he's got the promise of God the legacy of faithfulness for God's covenant people will go through this boy Isaac on the other hand, he has the command of God, offer this boy Isaac, kill this boy Isaac. And Abraham is caught in the tension in between. What does he do? What do you do when the promise of God seems to conflict with the command of God? Abraham finds himself in the middle, facing a dilemma, facing a very difficult decision. But what does the text say? By faith. By faith, Abraham acted. Specifically, what did he do? Abraham concluded that it was the sovereignty and the power of God that held those two things in tension. It was the sovereignty and the power of God that made it okay. That whatever happened, if Abraham was faithful to the word of God, to the command of God, that God would take care of things. He reasoned in his mind, the text says, that, okay, if I obey him and I kill my son Isaac, God will still fulfill his promise because he has the power, he has the sovereignty to raise Isaac back to life. And so Abraham's posture is full surrender, complete obedience. I don't understand it. 
It doesn't make sense to me. I can't make these, things to, these two things work out. Certainly, I don't want to kill my own son, but God, I trust you. You see, for Abraham, his faith assured him that no matter what, no matter what happened, things were going to be okay. It was going to be okay. God was in control, and God could be trusted. Isn't that the type of faith that we need? Not only the type of faith we need to face tough decisions and dilemmas, but to face tough times, difficult circumstances, bad news. The kind of faith that says no matter what happens, yes, I have my preferences and I am praying for those, but no matter what happens, God, I'm going to be faithful to you. Full surrender to you, God. Complete allegiance, obedience to you. I don't understand it. I would, I would draw it up a different way. But God, I'm going to be faithful to you. And whatever happens, I know this. You're in control and you are trustworthy. So everything's going to be okay. Ultimately, everything will be okay. It's the kind of faith that those three men uttered when they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Maybe you remember that story. They wouldn't bow down to the false gods, the human gods. Their allegiance was to the one and only God. Daniel 3 tells us what they said. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. You see, he has the power, he has the sovereignty, he can do it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if... He does not. We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Look at those two words, even if. Two giant, enormous words, not in form, but in function, right? Not in appearance, but in meaning. Even if. God, I want you to take away this disease, this sickness, this cancer, whatever it is. God, I know you can restore my family and my marriage. God, I know you can change my circumstances. In the snap of your fingers, everything could be different. God, I know you can deliver me from this injustice, this unfairness. God, I know you can make my life better. But even if you do not, I'm with you. I'll be faithful. You see, faithfulness is the common thread that holds this chapter together. It is what binds these men and women together. It is the thing they have in common. They live and die by faith. This great cloud of witnesses, as he will call them in a few minutes. What makes them a great cloud of witnesses? What holds them together as this community of witnesses to the glory of God, to the sovereignty and the power of God? It is their faith in God. Faith that enables them to manage, to get by, even when life is difficult. So we keep reading in verses 20 through 23 about the faith of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And as we're walking through the museum, we get to Moses' display, and it's bigger too. There's a lot to say about Moses. And so he camps out at Moses a little bit. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward or he was looking ahead to his reward. 
By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. What does the writer say there? He says a lot, but one of the things he says is that Moses could have lived an easy life. Moses could have sat back with the power and the privilege he had in Pharaoh's house. He'd been given a free path to an easy life. He could have embraced it. Many of us would have, if we're honest. But what did Moses do? He emptied himself of those things. He emptied himself of the power, the status, the privilege, so that he could be faithful to God and God's people. Do you remember Abraham was called to give up his one and only son? And Abraham reasoned that he would raise his son? Clearly an allusion to what God the Father did. He gave up his one and only son, and he raised his son. And here Moses empties himself of the power and the privilege that is his. An allusion to what Jesus did, Philippians 2, making himself nothing, becoming like a servant, being obedient even to death. But notice the choice Moses has to make here. Disgrace for the sake of Christ, he said, is greater than the treasures of Egypt. Disgrace for the sake of Christ. Now, human logic says that equation does not work. Human logic says, no, I don't know what the treasures of Egypt were. I can imagine they were good, but any earthly treasure is greater than any form of disgrace. Whatever it is, shame, disgrace, persecution, difficult times, no. Any treasure heaven or earth has is better than that. That's what human logic says. But Moses lived a different way. For Moses, it was the shame and the persecution that he faced being a man of God, living out his faith in front of the people of God that was greater than any treasure that he could have had. It's interesting how the writer says this, that Moses did this for the sake of Christ. Did Moses know Jesus? Well, God could have given him a vision, showed him Jesus, But I think what's happening here is the writer of Hebrews is framing his presentation of Moses with his first century audience in mind because he's talking to Jewish Christians who are facing disgrace for the sake of Christ. When he says that, they think, that's me. I'm just like Moses. I am am facing disgrace and shame and persecution. And I guess I really need to consider it better than the treasures of earth. Scripture is pretty clear about that, that we are to seek the treasures of heaven, not the treasures of earth. What enabled Moses to do that? To persevere under hardship and trial. It's the same thing that enables us to make it through difficult times. In verse 27, I don't know if you remember the phrase, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He saw him who is invisible. How did Moses do it? Because he could see what he could not see. That doesn't make sense. Moses could see what other people couldn't see. Okay, that's starting to make a little more sense. Moses could see through the eyes of faith that the eyes of the world refuses to see. Do you remember how this chapter started in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, with this description of what faith is? Faith is this confidence in what we hope for. It's this assurance or this certainty of what we cannot see. 
Moses was able to persevere through the shame, through the disgrace, through the hard times, because he could see what he couldn't see. He saw through the eyes of faith. Chapter 11 continues with brief descriptions of scenarios and people and people groups that lived and died by faith. And the writer seems to pick up some pace here, and you can kind of feel this anticipation for the bottom line and for this resounding conclusion. And so we read about the victories that God has provided people of faith, people who passed safely through the Red Sea when he divided the sea, people who watched the walls of Jericho fall down as they marched around the city by faith, Rahab the prostitute who rescued the spies, the kingdoms that were conquered Justice prevailed. Mouths of lions were shut. People escaped the flames. The weak were strengthened. Battles were won. People received back their dead, either literally or maybe some who came back from the verge of death. When you read something like that, at least I say, hey, I'm all in on that. Sign me up for that kind of faith. You see, that kind of faith says, I will do my part, God. I will be faithful. I will live by faith. I will believe in you, and I will try to act out that belief. And you do your part, God. And let me tell you what your part is, because I get to define it. God, your part is you protect me. You provide for me. You give me victory. That phrase, shut the mouths of lions, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? God, when a lion comes my way and wants to rip me apart, I want you to close its mouth. I want you to answer my prayers. I want you to give me what I want, what I think I need. Sign me up. And let's be honest, for many people, that is their view of Christianity. I do my part, God does his part. If God fails to do his part, I walk away. See, we know that's not the full picture of faith, don't we? We also can see that that's not the end of the chapter. There's more to read, and so we keep reading. Verse 36. Some, there should be a however there. However, some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. What happened? Things were going so well. I mean, walls were falling down. Armies were being victorious. The mouths of lions were being shut. Everything was going really well. And now we're talking about dying by people throwing rocks at you. We're talking about being sawed in two. Did you know that was in the Bible, by the way? Pretty exciting, huh? What happened? Something changed. Reality happened. And reality reminds all of us that there is another side of the story. That faithful people sometimes suffer. That bad things do happen to good people. You see, faith is not a free ride to an easy life. As much as we want it to be, as much as we pray for it to be, there is no promise of a comfortable, easy life. The recipients, the first recipients of this sermon, this letter, this book, Hebrews, they knew that. They were facing incredible persecution, incredible pressure from those around them. They were alienated and mistreated. They were persecuted because they were choosing to live by faith. Sometimes we face hardship and opposition 
because of our faith and sometimes in spite of our faith. And I wonder, I wonder if the people of verses 36 through 38 either look up or if they ever look up to the people of verses 32 through 35 and say, hey, wait a second, that's not fair. You guys had it easy. You got to march around a city and the walls came down. I'm getting sawed in two here. I'm getting stoned to death. This isn't fair. This isn't right. That's what many of us would say. That's what many of us do say. We go through a difficult time. We go through suffering. We go through pain. And what do we do? We look around. We look around and we see people who seem to have a great life, a comfortable life, an easy life. They're not going through what we're going through. And we say, God, this isn't fair. Why are they just going on with life? I'm here suffering. I'm dying here. And God, I'm I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I try to do what's right. I know them. They're not that good. Why are you being so good to them? You see, our questions, our questions reveal our hearts, and our hearts reveal our priorities, our focus. And it is so hard not to be focused on this life, isn't it? It's so hard not to be focused on our surroundings and our circumstances. It's where we are. It's what we have. It makes sense. It can be a challenge to look beyond this life to see what you can't see because we often see what we can see. We want the outcomes. We want the results. To see beyond those things takes faith. And faith reminds us that outcomes are not nearly as important as faithfulness. If you are on OC's campus, I would encourage you sometime to go by and see Tony's Alley. It's a little garden area they created just north of the art music building. It's all kind of right there together. It's a small little tucked away corner. It's it's really peaceful, really pretty. Tony's Alley. As some of you know, Tony and his wife Priscilla were members of this church family several years ago, dear friends of mine. Unfortunately, we've, we've lost them both. About 15 years ago, I can't believe it's been that long, about 15 years ago, Tony was diagnosed with a malignant brain cancer, brain tumor. He was devastated, as you can imagine. His family was devastated. His whole church family, we were all devastated. And Tony showed such great faith after he got that news. So one day I said, Tony, is there any way I could just come by and visit with you for a little bit? I just want to interview you, just ask you a few questions, maybe set up a video camera if you're okay with that. And I just want to ask you about this whole experience and about your faith. He said, sure, come on. So I sat down with him for quite a while in his office. Asked him, I asked him some very hard questions, and he gave me some very heartfelt answers. Here's what he said about getting that bad news. He said, when you get that kind of news, that we're going to do our best to keep you going as long as you can, but you have to understand that you are going to lose this fight. He said, well, you really have no choice but to turn it over to God. And I said, well, how do you have that kind of courage? He said, it's not courage, it's faith. He said, it's faith. It's about faith. I know that God is going to take care of me. I know that whether I live or die, no matter how bad things get, God will take care of me. Do you remember Abraham? On one hand, the promise of God. On the other hand, the command of God. 
wondering what do I do ultimately knowing that whatever happens if he surrenders to God that everything is going to be okay God will take care of him do you remember Moses who considered disgrace for the cause of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt that he could have had so he faced shame and persecution he was mistreated why because he knew that God would take care of him that's what faith knows that's what faith sees yes we have to live in this world and we see the circumstances and we feel them and it's painful sometimes but when we live by faith we see beyond them and we know that God is sovereign he is powerful he is loving he is kind he is trustworthy and he will take care of us that ultimately everything will be okay Tony stared death in the eye and in many ways he didn't flinch and he joins that great cloud of witnesses that we read about And so the chapter ends this way in verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. All of them, look at that word. These were all commended for their faith. Those who had great things happen, where the mouths of lions were shut and the walls came down and there was victory to be had, and those who died by the sword, were cut in two, were persecuted, were destitute, who lived in caves because they had nothing. What brings them together and why they were commended is not how things turned out in this life, it was their faith. That's what joins them together into this great cloud of witnesses. They weren't commended for their outcomes, they were commended for their faith. The outcomes, the results, the things that you could see and feel, those were not the bottom line. Faith was the bottom line. And faith is what connects them not only to each other, but to us. Look at that, verse 40. Together with us, this great cloud of witnesses that faced the fires, some escaping the flames and some being consumed by the flames. They join us. And we join them. And together we look and we long for something better. There's that word again, better. Something better. Throughout Hebrews, something better. So keep running. We can overcome this world. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it. But we can overcome this world because when we are with Jesus, we are with the one who said, I have overcome the world. It's been called the world's hardest race. It happens in the mountains of East Tennessee. It's called the Barkley Marathons. It is a 100-mile course. It's actually a 20-mile course that participants have to do five times. There are no medical stops or stations along the way. And the elevation change in this five-round course is equivalent to Mount Everest, twice it's grueling in fact only about one percent of participants actually even finish the race one year something like 1100 people started the race and I think 14 finished one runner said after collapsing after one and a half times through the course again it takes five times to finish after one and a half times 
She collapsed and later said, you don't come here to be victorious. You come here to be humiliated. She said, when you're out there, you're just on your own. It's eerie. It's lonely. She said, you have to be comfortable being inside your own head. Everyone who comes back, she said, is broken. That was her word. Everyone who comes back is broken. Life is a very difficult race, isn't it? It's very difficult. It can be. And the world wants nothing more to do to you than to break you. And Satan wants more than anything else for you to abandon your faith so that you'll quit the race. He wants you to fall flat on your face. That's what Satan wants. God says, keep running. Keep running. And you're not on your own. It's not a lonely race because you have others. This great cloud of witnesses, those we read about and those who are in the flesh around you who are running with you and encouraging you and saying, yes, you can do this, we can do this. But that's not all. You have Jesus with you who runs ahead of you, who runs behind you to support you, who runs beside you to show you the way you have Jesus. And Jesus has overcome this world. And when you stick with Jesus, you can overcome this world. And so we finish with John's words in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. What's the them? All the forces in the world trying to get you to quit. You have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You can run. You can finish. You can endure hardship. You can face suffering head on because the one who is in you is greater than the one in this world. And he will bring victory and he will fix this broken world. He will make all things new. So keep running. Keep running. If we can help you today, let us do it. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a little room in the hallway right behind me. You can swing by there. In fact, you can exit as we stand in just a moment. Go there. They'll, they'll encourage you. They'll, they'll pray for you. Or you can come down to the front, and we as a church family will do that. Or maybe you're ready today to give your life to Christ, to be baptized into Christ, and begin running that race with Jesus. We'd love to celebrate with you today. There's something we can do. We invite you to come as we stand and sing. Hide me now under your wings. Cover me within your mighty hand. When the oceans arise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king.